Mets fans, prepare yourselves to get Metsmerized! Hello and welcome to episode 17 of the Get Metsmerized podcast presented as always by MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm your host Sal Manzo, joined this week by MMO Associate Editor Patrick Glynn, and we're also joined by veteran Major League catcher and current free agent and former Met from last year's spring training, Caleb Joseph. Caleb came on and had some great conversations with us about his former manager, Buck Showalter, his time in the big leagues talk about some lockout things and some more. So without further ado, here's Caleb Joseph. Caleb, thank you so much for taking some time with us today. You got it. I'm here also joined by Patrick Lynn, associate editor for MMO. We always love having Patrick here. But Caleb, you know, right off the bat, want to talk to you a little bit about your brief kind of time with the Mets. In particular, I was wondering if you, you know, could talk to us about any Mets prospects, particularly pitchers that you worked with during your time with the Mets organization that maybe might have stood out with you that you could tell fans about. Sure. Yeah. I I really enjoyed my time with the Mets and it was brief and very much behind the scenes Uh, was a late addition to spring training in goodness. I think it was uh, early March, maybe. So was, was there in spring training and was trying to get my feet under me, trying to get to know a lot of these uh, new Mets prospects. And, you know, one of the names that really jumps out to me, I know you mentioned pitchers of the Pete Armstrong really, really jumped out at me. And I, I know he was a, a big piece and getting Baez, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the trade getting Javier Baez. So uh, he looked like a nice looking prospect. Uh, and whenever you have guys like that, that you can go out and, and pry a Javier Baez away from, you know, the Cubs, that that shows strength of, uh, of the system. So there were a number of pitchers um, that I was really intrigued by in, in the Met system. I'm, I'm going to be an absolute terrible interview here because uh, being, <laughs> being a, a quote veteran uh, of, of 35 years old, I've taken more foul balls to the mask than I can even remember, which induces probably my, uh, mild or light concussions. So names I have, um, I have really not necessarily forgotten, but there, I do remember um was McGill in the system? Is he, is that? Yeah. So he, I think he, he really impressed me. I really liked him. I like catching him. Um, I, th- I think he kind of got a chance this year. Did he make his debut? Yeah. Okay, great. Sure oh yeah. Okay. There's one for one. Okay, great. I, I liked him. <laughs> he was really good. Um, big, strong guy, um, healthy, um, he's very, very durable looking. So his stuff was really, really nice. Um, there were a couple left-handers that I, I really, I really were intrigued by. I think one of them was in AAA this year. Again, man, I, I, this is maybe. terrible. Is a pucky maybe? Yes, is a pucky. That's it. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. So <laughs> um, that was that was really interesting. I, I was really intrigued by him and was hoping that um, that I would get to kind of see more of his development. And then uh, before I knew it, my time with the Mets was kind of over. So. I transitioned pretty quick, but yeah, their system was looking really good. And it's all, it always makes me wonder how systems are going to rebound or respond uh, with teams that are going for it because they're constantly having, having, or trying to add to their major league team as it gets closer to, you know, that deadline. And it takes, 
nice looking pieces to acquire nice looking pieces. So you always wonder how are they replenishing, but I thought the farm was in a really good spot. And of course, uh, might, might be jumping the gun here, but the major league team obviously is in a really nice spot as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, especially, you know, after, after this off season here and, and adding, and adding Buck, I know you kind of, you worked under Buck for Buck Showalter for what, four or five seasons, I guess more generally kind of just what was he like as the manager? What was your experience with him? And then, you know, I know Sal's got maybe a couple more specific questions. Buck is, is a very, he's a very unique manager. I haven't had a manager like him since and had never had one like him before that. One of the main things that come to mind when I think about Buck is, is detail oriented. So you play the game for 20, 25 years and you feel like you have a pretty decent grasp of the game. And then you play for a Buck Showalter and you realize so many minute details that seem minute that you've passed over or have not noticed are actually major points in a major league game. A lot of times in high school, college, even in the low minor leagues, these little points of the game can be overlooked or missed and you can get away with it. If you just have a Jacob deGrom pitching for the Binghamton Mets, it doesn't really matter if you miss a cutoff man in the fourth inning of a tie baseball game because he's just going to strike out the next three guys. Well, little bitty mistakes and the, uh, the 90 foot increments are major in the major league level. They're huge and they're huge momentum shifts. And when you play for Buck, you realize how important those things are. You, you really truly understand how important they are because he very specifically lays out in details how it affected the game, how it will affect it moving forward and how we're going to clean it up. So spring training right out the gate is an absolute, um, it's almost like a two by four to the face, because if you're not used to a Buck Showalter spring training, it is, uh, it's regimented, it is uh, timely, it's crisp, the T's are, are crossed, the, dies, the, the, the I's are dotted, everything is buttoned up, it's tight, it's professional, it's, uh, there's no wasted movement, no wasted time, everything has an incredibly intense purpose get your work done and get out. And for guys that would come over uh, from other organizations, they were almost in a state of shock at how this well-oiled machine just started to churn and move in one direction. So I'm getting long-winded here, but um, his spring trainings just from the get-go were noticeably different. The detail in terms of we want this guy specifically in this position because, and then would lay out the, uh, the reasoning and all those type of things uh, really added to us being able to trust each other on the field, which then led us to believe that we weren't going to beat ourselves. And if you don't beat yourselves with the lineup and the, and the, the, the structure that that team has, I think their chances look pretty good. I feel like that's part of the reason why they kind of maybe brought in like a lot more veterans in the off season. Uh, this Mets team has kind of trended younger for a long time, I feel. And they brought in a bunch of 33-year-olds and Max Scherzer, who's like 36, 37 both for the clubhouse leadership, but then also likely within their search for a manager for someone like Buck, like clearly those guys will like respond pretty well to someone like Buck Showalter as a manager. You mentioned uh, like those little tiny crisp, you know, details that Buck helps point out to you. What's an example of one of those that? Sure. Yeah. Let's just say there's a runner at first base, right? Ball hit down the left field line. Most everybody has taught, 
in terms of the cutoff, if you're a second baseman or a shortstop and you're going to be the cutoff man for a potential play at home. So we have possibly a sure double off the bat, runner at first, ball on the left field line. Most everybody just runs to the line because that is in a direct line from the left field corner to home plate, right? Well, if the cutoffs move all the way straight to that foul line, you have a relay from the left field corner in to, you know, right around the dirt and then you throw it home. What you don't realize is if you line up that way, the runner is actually going to at some point cross the path of the ball that is coming into home plate. So at some point that runner is who is running in foul territory is going to have to get into fair territory to touch the plate, some piece of him or whatever. And so you don't create the most perfect throwing lane. What if you have a guy that makes an incredibly tight turn at third base and he's running directly down that third base chalk line as the relay from left field is coming in. If your relay guys are right on the line, you're having a catcher that is trying to figure out where the ball is, having to adjust on a throw that leads him inside the line, a throw that leads him up the line, all of these different factors. And if it, if you have a guy dead out, if you've executed a good relay, yet your catcher gets blinded for a split second and can't pick up that ball, that that's 90 feet. And more importantly, at that place in the game, that's a run. That one run might cost you a game. And how many times do we see it at the end of a year that it comes down to one or two games, whether you make the playoffs or not. And we just saw this past year, if you can just get in, you never know what can happen. Look at the Braves. Look at the Braves. I mean, they, what they finished, I don't know the exact number, but I mean, their, their total wins for the entire season, counting all the playoff games, all the regular season games, I think it was less than 100 maybe. You know, there are teams in the AL East that were winning 90, 97, 107 games didn't even make the playoffs. Blue Jays won a bunch of games. So these minute details. So, so the question is, where do you put them? You put them three to four feet inside in fair territory inside the line to create a little bit of a V so that you have a direct, you have a direct line to those guys. And then a really clear throwing lane to home plate. If that makes any sense, you know, with words, if it makes any sense. Yeah, that, that, that makes total sense. Um, and, and so that's kind of something, you know, maybe in college or something like that, that like, yeah, I guess naturally you would think that kind of just going right up the line was um, the way to go. But yeah, I get that, that would, I'm sure that helps you out a lot as a catcher too, is kind oh, of it, understanding that. Yes. It's, it's, uh, it's game changing and you can execute a relay, but you're not trying to dodge three or four different, you know, factors going on there. And another one is infield in. Okay, let's just play infield in. Well, most everybody, they just, you know, hold up the sign, infield in, and the infield, where's the infield go? Nine times in 10, they, they come right to the grass. Every one of them, all five of them, or four, four of them, right to the grass. Well, that's, that's just a kind of a, a blind carpet statement, just infield in. No, no, no. It's all predicated on speed of the runner, where this guy hits certain pitches, exit velocities, and Buck, play, Buck played that type of stuff in Baltimore. You know, there's some stuff maybe floating around that, you know, he's not not very much into analytics. That that couldn't be further from the truth. Buck was using analytics before any of us were born. I mean, he was using his own. So he's all about the information. Buck's looking for anything to give him a leg up to win a game. And you don't just put those guys on the grass. You strategically place them. The shortstop might be three steps from the grass to give him the best chance because of exit velos and a certain guy's percentages of hitting balls 
in certain in certain spots. It's not these blanket. It's very detail oriented. And that's how he goes about it. And what happens, like I said, is it creates when you trust that your teammate is going to be in that position and your teammate is going to be in the right spot and you've practiced it and you've honed in on it and it's become a point of interest. What happens is you're then able to let your total talents fly, knowing you have a guide that's going to always be backing up. You can let it all rip and you can play to the utmost of your potential and not fear, oh, if I throw it bad, what if? No, we've already covered that. We've got a guy in a certain position. We're giving you and putting you in the best place to succeed. That's uh, that's music to my ears. I know that's going to be music to a lot of other Mets fans' ears. You know, I, I'm someone that wasn't uh, too wasn't too jazzed up on, on the show out the hire just because of other folks that I thought maybe that were out there that have you know been in the game. You know, not um, you know in the last few years, not not that Buck has been out you know that long or anything like that. But it just seems. The, what I keep hearing, not, not only from you and everything we've heard, is this preparation, that he is the most prepared person in the room. He makes his team the most prepared. And it seems like the last few years, and Patrick, you could tell me if I'm wrong, I, and I'm not knocking anyone, I don't know if the Mets had that as much. It didn't seem like that at the, at, at the helm at times. Themes seem, excuse me, seems, things seem to uh, kind of be going, you know, rudderless ship at times. So I love hearing that. And then, you know, the next thing I wanted to ask you about, you talked about how, um, you know, Buck has been using analytics, you know, before we were born and that kind of thing. And that's great to hear also. So I guess this kind of answers the question, you know, how is he as far as relating the information? Because I know in his press conference, he talked about how, you know, his, his biggest job and his coaching staff's biggest job is giving whatever the players need to, you know, for them to succeed, whatever they want from us, we're going to give. And obviously that is uh a big part of that, I'm sure, is relaying and digesting the information um, to players. So I just kind of wanted to hear on that end how he is with that also. Oh, yeah. You, you talk about preparation. That A lot of that preparation stemmed from the use of, of advanced analytics in knowing where we're going to play this guy and get to the specific how we're going to pitch this guy, how, how we're going to turn a double play against this guy because he runs and he slides softly in the second base or this guy jogs three-fourths of the way down the line look there wasn't a sink look you're, you're going into battle when you play a major league series you're going into battle and if you don't know everything possible about your opponent you you don't you you have it's almost like having a one arm tied behind your back you you can have an amazing fighter but if you tie one arm behind his back it's just sort of irrelevant buck gave us the amount of information that was just enough, not too much to drown us out, uh, to get all in our heads. It was, it was a perfect amount and it was stuff that was applicable, uh, stuff that you definitely could use. It wasn't just a string of numbers, a string of things that did just to get through it. It was stuff that you could absolutely lose, use, sorry. Things like, uh, there was one year where Marcus Simeon, I think he, he was playing shortstop for the Oakland A's. He may have had 10 or 15 errors and like 12 of them are throwing errors high into the inside part of the base I mean I want to know that if I hit the ball you know against him that the chances of an error it's not a bob it's not a bobbled error it's a throwing error and it's in high it's amazing you go over that information uh you know four hours before the first game of the series and it is amazing how when you are running down the first baseline there's this little a blip in your brain that says, be prepared for a high throw. If there's a high throw, I need to go low. You're, it's unbelievable how many times that he would cover something that seemed sort of insignificant until it happened. 
And it might take three or four series for something that he mentioned like that to play a part. But that 90-foot gift might put pressure on the starting pitcher. Now he's in the stretch. Now he has to throw more high-stress pitches. Now we're able to uh, maybe play a hit and run, whatever. It, it changes the, the complexity of the game, which is what we talked about earlier, is those 90-foot increments and how those are so precious. They're so precious. And if you don't really truly focus on them, and it's not a point of emphasis every single day, it's very easy to get in this uh, pattern or path where uh, you can let three or four of those go. And it's just kind of, uh, we just didn't play our best today. We'll get them tomorrow. And then you realize that two days later, you made the same mistake. No, no, no. That doesn't happen with a Buck Showalter team. We, we would go over every play that, that was unexecuted. And we would go over the plays that we executed perfectly as, as, as motivation to keep it going. And when you're in that type of setting, which I was fortunate enough to be in with him in Baltimore, everybody buys in because they believe it. And you can see it and you watch how these plays, the, the, this attention to detail really does change the game. If you know that on any given night, you aren't going to beat yourself and you believe in the guys inside of your clubhouse, that you believe they're good players, which the Mets absolutely have. If you know you won't beat yourself, you have to love your chances. If you're a Met, you have to love your chances. And so if you can just stay out of your own way, be fundamentally sound and play as a team, pull together under, under you know, where are we going? Where do we want to go? How do we get there? And what's it going to take? And those are the three things that Buck's going to cover right out the gate. And it's good. It's, it's, it's not hogwash. It's not eyewash. It's not it's not just a thing you do in spring training. No, no, it's, it's, that is our, that's it. And every day after that is a point of emphasis. And this is where we're going. This is why we're getting there. It is, it is so regimented. It's not, it's not boot camp. It's, it's not boot camp. You, you, there are players that may not love in terms of the, the, the consistency of the attention to detail, but I'll tell you what, they end up playing their best baseball in terms of consistency when they everybody buys in then you have magic and that's the magic that's the magic and that's the separator which is what buck is always looking for he's looking for what's the separator if i look on my team and i look at the braves team and we have pretty good you know what's going to be the separator that lets us win the game yeah yeah i know you mentioned in his in his press conference he said something like there's no magic dust that kind of makes all that stuff come about so that kind of attention to detail is uh, not surprising at all. Um, I'm just thinking about those Marcus Simeon throwing errors. That's probably why he got moved to second base. But <laughs> <laughs> it's, it turned out pretty well for him. Um, but I, like, I, I was thinking of like the 2021 iteration of the Mets, both publicly, someone like Francisco Lindor kind of, I think he was vaguely talking about analytics, you know, just kind of saying he, does, he I think he cares a little bit to, to, to play the game a little bit more naturally or something like that, kind of without all that outside noise and like in, you know, in a league full of, you know, a thousand players or something like that, you're going to get that. But I'm just thinking like it, like there was also still a clear buy-in from him in terms of, I was thinking about what you mentioned earlier about like infield positioning. And even when kind of, you know, batters are coming in and like, there's clearly a lot of information that he was able to buy into, but um, I know the a former general manager, the Mets also was talking about, uh, some players not completely buying into everything and that kind of affected their playing time. I was wondering if in your experience on the Orioles, even if it was with you or something like that, where, um, where Buck kind of explained something, 
that maybe seemed a little bit foreign or if there was a little bit pushback of something and then you know if he was able to kind of resolve that some way or if he kind of tailored his explanations to different players while you were on the Orioles oh yeah I mean he Buck fully understands that you could have a clubhouse of 26 guys bringing 26 totally different uh, learning styles, attributes, personality traits. And he's big on that. Just bring what you bring. What do you bring? Are you an on-base guy? Are you guys supposed to hit it over the fence? Are you supposed to, guys supposed to steal a base? You come in to play good defense. Are you a relief pitcher coming in to get one guy out? Bring what you bring. And so it, when it's that specific, he's able to understand. And that's, that's a lot of what he does is figure out who he's got. He's got to figure out who he's got and how all of these pieces of the puzzle start to fit together. But um, in terms of actual example, there, there were numerous times where uh, he would go to the numbers to play a certain matchup, even if it was a right on right matchup where we might have had uh, a nice left handed bat, maybe Flaherty waiting on deck. And you think it's a it's an automatic man hey, like it's right on right. You know, we got Java Chamberlain up you know, pitching, uh, Flaherty's on the bench, like, uh, and say, I'm hitting. Well, like, why, why, why am I still hitting? I'm a 220 hitter. Like, I suck. Like, it's the eighth inning. Like, you know, let, let him try. He's got a better chance than me. And stuff like that, when he would be playing some sort of analytical game and you knew it, and after the fact, he always made sure that he told you where he stood and where he was at. And that's all you're looking for. You're looking for that transparency. And it doesn't mean you have to totally agree with it, but it's that transparency and that honesty they gained your respect. You can totally disagree. He's the one running the ship. And if you don't like it, play better. If you don't like it, then don't hit 220. Then be the guy that hits 700 and you never get your name pulled out of the lineup. So it's, it's just all excuses or whatever. But reality is he will have a reason for everything. And if you ask him, he will tell you. I think one of his biggest pet peeves is if you're going to do something on the field and you don't have a reason, that's when he gets ticked off. It's when you go for it. He doesn't want you to play by some certain standard or rules or whatever, but if you have a feeling and a gut feeling, you go for it. Don't ask questions later. Go for it. Yet, if it's just a hunch, that's totally different. Now, it might be harming the team. But all these examples of, of you know, he, he, he's very, very, very good at bullpen management. Very good. The, the, probably the best. Um, and the bullpen guys in New York are going to love him. I mean, absolutely love him. He, he, he will take incredible care of the bullpen. And I think the bullpen's probably in good hands now with the addition of Max Scherzer as well. You have two of the best pitchers on the planet. So they, you know, I don't want to hear any complaining from those guys down there. You basically got two days off, you know, right. But yeah, very, very person specific in terms of if there was a move that affected a player, he would always tell you what was going on. Uh, and if, and if, if he wasn't, you could approach him, Hey, you know, what were you thinking there? And he, he's going to have an answer. And I'd be the first one to say, you know what, you know, I, here, here's what it was. I went with this and it didn't work out, you know, next time might be different. We'll see, you know, as long as I think you go back to Francisco, as long as it doesn't feel scripted as long, as long as it doesn't feel predetermined and we're not just uh, literal pawns being moved into certain positions, just based on numerical values. That's when I think guys start giving a little pushback is, man, you know what? I know this guy is, you know, has a, a 140 weighted on base average against, you know, that guy, but that guy hasn't gotten anybody out in the month of June. You know, like, it's like, well, this specific matchup doesn't play here. That That's when players start to get a little bit ticked off when they feel like they see stuff right in front of them 
yet the numbers might be indicating something that is literal opposite. And you feel like when certain things are predetermined that you can't really have any say in it. And then, because you, you don't feel like you're putting the player in the best position to succeed, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I feel like that kind of, I mean, that kind of situation you're talking about comes a little bit up with like, like the Rays in the postseason and with Kevin Cash and like that was kind of, you know, caused sure. a lot of controversy. But what was that mm-hmm. back in 2020 where he kind of pulled Blake Snell? And that, but that's kind of just like, that's kind of the MO of the Rays though, right? It's like, and they have a lot of players in a position where they can't like, I don't know, push back against this because it's not like they have like tons and tons of super duper stars on their team, you know? But yeah, that's, that's very interesting to hear that um, because there is a feel to the game. And like, basically what I've, what I've heard about Buck overall, you and I mean himself talking about it is that he takes a lot of that information and then adds the touch of feel of his, you know, dozens and dozens of years managing. Yeah, I would agree. And if you lean too far to one side, you're, you're probably in a bad spot. You, you, can't, you can't totally dismiss the information that we have. It's great stuff. There's a lot of stuff that really take the guesswork out of it. Uh, if, it if you need it to, to lead you in a direction, it will. It's, it is, uh, it's unbiased. Um, if you totally play the game by that, you become predictable and your players become pawns. You know, and they and they'll feel like that. So it's it's trying to blend those two in that perfect marriage and perfect union. Which, to be honest with you, um, I, you know, I was over there, uh, and I was in I was in New York for the first I don't know six, maybe even eight weeks of the season. And I I have told people I thought, um, especially with the the pitching side of the analytics, I wasn't as involved with the hitting side as I was with the pitching, just because I was working with pitchers more in the bullpen, being a catcher. I thought the pitching side of their analytics, what they were doing there, I thought it was phenomenal. I thought is the best is the best I had seen in five organizations. I loved the way that they were doing it. The blend that they had with, uh, um, you know, Hefner and, and Accardo. I know Accardo might might have moved on, but the, the blend that they had in some of the uh, the actual IT guys in there, it was phenomenal. I absolutely loved it, and um, they were doing an amazing job. So. You know, Buck's walking into a, a really cool situation, uh, in, in my opinion. I, I, I think they're really, they're really onto something in terms of blending it. And uh, that's really good. It's, it's really good for him and, and all those pitchers. That's pretty surprising to hear about, you know, the, the Mets kind of analytical situation um, being as positive as it is, because it seems like, in, in terms of the front office, at least, like, maybe two years ago they were probably in the bottom third of the league in terms of just bodies that they had in their analytical department and I know that's improved vastly but but I mean it seems like just one or two additions of someone like a Hefner and and all that can you know turn things around just like that um and it really seems like they're trying to build a a true base and a true like system to what they're doing rather than just having one or two guys kind of run the show and implement things totally agree I think they're really onto something. I, I like Jeremy a lot, Jerry Hefner. I, I I really like him a lot. He's I, w- I was I was happy to see that that he was retained. I, I thought that was a really good move. He was the him. only one. He was the only one that kept around, but it seems like for good reason. Yeah, no, absolutely. And this is all uh, music to Steve Cohen's ears. He loves this. I know, probably <laughs> loving to hear this. But um, you know, the last thing on Buck, I just wanted to ask you quick. 
you know, you talk about how regimented he is and detail oriented. It almost sounds like a Bill Belichick in that sense. But then you said that it's not like a boot camp, which I thought that was ultra interesting. So I was wondering if you could tell us like what a, a Buck Showalter Buck Show led clubhouse is like when when you're winning, when things are good, but also, you know, when 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 times are tough, when maybe you're not winning ballgames like you should have. Just curious how he is on both sides of the uh, spectrum. Sure. Yeah, I, I do. I do tend to um, kind of overemphasize. It might sound uh, disciplinarian uh, type. It's 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 not that. It's a uh, it's just structure. And what 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 I do need to convey and get out there is hopefully people are still listening. They haven't turned it off. Going, oh, this guy sucks. So I'm turning. He he is hilarious. And any given day, there there is funny stuff going on all the time. It's it's not all serious, Buck. I mean, when, when the game starts, it's game time and it's business. Yet. There are, there are jokes, laughs all over the place. Uh, any given pre-series meeting, he's throwing up a hilarious clip of who knows what. Uh, just anything you would find on some, you know, random, oh, look at this. You know, your buddy's sending you stupid things about uh, of, of maybe a 350-pounder trying to jump off a roof uh, and bounce off of a trampoline into a little bitty uh, portable uh, pool, you know, stuff like that. And it just ends terribly. I mean, he'll throw that up on the, on the little video screen all the time. Uh, there's all kinds of gaffes or gags that happen during, you know, during a season that he, I mean, you can't get anything by this guy, nothing. I mean, if you trip and fall in right field, backing up a base and the play is in left field, he will see it. He will see it. And you will be on the reel the next day in the next advance. They're going to like, all right, you know, right field, uh, you know, we've, we've, we've had some uneven turf out there and he'll just start rolling the clip and, and sure enough, bam, you know, there goes whoever it is. I mean, you know, there, there goes McNeil or whatever. <laughs> I know he's an infielder, but you know, McNeil flops, uh, and it, it's stuff like that. It totally keeps it loose. Um, it's not all, it's not, it might seem that way because people get are enthusiastic about, you know, the, the structure that he brings, but it's, it's not that way at all. And he's the only, he's the only manager I've ever had that's had a talent show during spring training. I don't know. I've only been to five different spring trainings, you know, but he has a talent show and it's really cool. I mean, he sets the whole thing up lights. I mean, it's a big deal. If you're like a first year player, if you're a rookie, like you, this is your time. It, it's a talent. Like, let's go. I mean, it is, it, there's stuff like that, 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 uh, that just seem like, you know, they seem like things that happen all the, all the time and all the way around, but it's, it's really not. I mean, he's very, uh, uh, in, in Texas one year, we went to his house. He had everybody over to his house on an off day, had a, had a 18 piece band there, uh, just hanging out, having a good time. Yeah. It's, he is, uh, he's great. He is really great. And, um, he, he's my, my most favorite manager I've played for. And, I played for, you know, Lovello and, and Charlie Montoya and, and even Louie. Um, well, I didn't really play for Louie, you know, but was around Louie. And I, I mean, great, all great humans, nothing negative to say. Just my personal favorite, you know, was Buck. And yeah, he's, I, I, I texted James McCain. He's a friend of mine. He lives about 10 minutes down the road. I texted him. I, I told him, I said, I, I really, truly believe you're, you're going to really love him. I really do. Um, and I, I just hope for Mets fans, because I mean, look at the talent. Good grief. I mean, if, if there was ever a time to, 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 to do it it's it sure looks like right now i mean two of the best pictures on the planet i'm going james man you're so lucky look at this you get to catch <laughs> oh man you can't put a bad finger down it's impossible you know what i mean yeah. it's like 
it was basically two off days as a catcher, just throw the finger down, throw the glove up and here you go. I mean, yeah, it's, it's going to be really, I'm going to be following the Mets really closely. Um, I'm, I'm actually excited about it um, to see what happens. I love it. That's great. Um, you know, if you talk to James anytime soon, tell him if he's bored, he can come on the podcast anytime. That's a discussion <laughs> for another time. You um, got it. <laughs> but I want to transition now off of Buck Walter, and I want to talk about you a little bit. Um, oh. Obviously, you're a catcher. You've you know been in the big leagues for a long time. I was wondering if you had you know a favorite pitcher that you love catching, and also if there's a certain pitcher that you've never caught that you know would be your dream to to catch a bullpen for them or catch them in a game or something like that. Ooh. Well. To be honest with you, I mean, the the funnest guy I probably got to catch was probably Darren O'Day, just in terms of fun. Um, he's, you know, side oh, armor because he was so easy to catch. And that was the most amazing thing to me is when I caught Darren. I mean, he threw it to my glove every time. And because of the deception, because of the arm angle and because of the unique uh, spin and horizontal and vertical break of all of his pitches, he, it works. Uh, but for me, it, having a guy in the eighth inning that you felt like you could sit back in a rocking chair and catch when the game's on the line, there might even be guys on base. It was just fun. And uh, knowing that you pretty much had no chance against this guy uh, was really cool. Now, on the reverse, when I hit against him in spring training, it was the complete opposite. It was <laughs> terrible to hit off of. And I'm sitting back there, you know, there were times where I'm sitting back there catching going, how are these guys not hitting this? Like it's, it's good, but it's not, it's not the most amazing pitches I've ever seen. And then you're standing up facing it, you know, from a different viewpoint and vantage point, And it's totally different. It's impossible to see it. It's, it's, it feels like it's going to hit you every time. Uh, so catching him was really fun. And to be honest with you, uh, probably Jake, probably DeGrom. Um, you know, he's got pretty regimented uh, bullpen sessions with his personal catcher there. Uh, Rack, who's been around forever. People need to know about Rack. He, I, I was only there for three months, but he is the man. Um, he is the man. Uh, awesome guy in the bullpen. He just does pretty much all of Jake's uh, bullpen stuff. They've been together, I guess, for a number of years now. So I, I watched attentively. I mean, I was there watching all of his bullpens, um, but I, I never actually caught a pitch from Jake. And so um, I just, I love what he does. I, I, I played against Jake in college. He went to Stetson. I went to Lipscomb. So, um, oh, no. Man down. <laughs> um, sorry about that. Um, no worries. I would, I would I would really love to to catch Jake. He, he would he would be oh no he would be so fun to catch. It just seems like he just just dots it right at the glove every time, and it was incredible velocity force. Uh, maybe never know. Never know. Yeah. His 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 release point maps are like a dime when you look mm -hmm. at them, and then his heat maps are a dime when you look at them. It's uh. Yeah, I think I, that's probably honestly at this point, Jake's probably in, in the top three of any catcher who hasn't caught him, right? Yeah, it's and even watching it is different. Um, watching it from the side or even just slightly angled, being five feet from rack, the catcher, it's just unbelievable. You just can't you you can't imagine how different it is because you've seen a million different balls thrown in the bullpen and then you watch him and it's it's literally different. And then you go, okay, I, I actually understand. And then that was cool uh, was the, the tech guys literally explaining to me all the reasons why he's so good. So then you have tech behind it and you realize 
oh, okay, he's doing a couple things that are a little bit different that is so unique to him and his ability and his uh, mobility and all of these type of things that you're going, okay, like, because you, you just, you know, we, we see velocities, right? We see 100 miles an hour. We see 98. We see, you know, we see hard sliders at 91, 93 sometimes, but there, there's stuff that he's doing that is literally, um, literally makes it almost impossible to hit. And I faced him once in spring training and he was just nice and easy at 98, 99. And I literally, I literally could not swing the bat. <laughs> I'm going swing and it's already in Nito's glove. And I'm going get like, this is embarrassing, man. I mean, I never told anybody that. So we yeah. might have to edit this, you know, out of the, out of the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> but literally it was, it was out of his hand and in Nito's glove. And my brain was, I was registering swing and it was too like, couldn't even like check swing. Do, do you think it's do you think it's in the repetition in his motion because that's what ron darling would talk a lot about on the broadcast is that it seems like over time his 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 uh wind up and and his mechanics have all gotten so perfect kind of the velocity came naturally because of that because he's able to repeat the exact same motion so perfectly every time oh yeah that that's absolutely number one if you're if you're looking good night i'm having technical difficulties sorry <laughs> No, I'm not on the roller coaster. I promise. Um, <laughs> if you're if you're looking for consistency in a pitcher, the very first thing you're looking for, and especially as me as a catcher, you're looking for repeatability of the windup. Like, can you repeat your windup? And it sounds silly, okay? It sounds silly. This is a major league pitcher. How can he not repeat his? No, no, no. Like, if you literally just pay attention, there are guys that literally cannot repeat their windup to you know, eight to 10 times, they're, they're going to miss out on, they're going to, something is going to fly out of their windup. Something's going to fail. Something's going to do something. And that's consistency. And so when you have a windup that is biomechanically, I mean, I'm not going to say perfect, but dang near close to it. <laughs> and you have what seems like nine foot long arms if people don't realize like the length of his wingspan is unbelievable. I mean, the guy, at, at rest his hands are like hanging down to his knees i mean it's unreal so you're talking about extension you're talking about explode like the just explosiveness of a fastball these are type of things that you can measure but you can't really measure as a hitter until it's on you because you're just looking at a radar gun you're seeing 97 you're going i better get ready but then you add in you know seven and a half you know feet of extension and that's a that's a separator i mean sorry that's that's a separator Okay. Like yeah. you can see 98, but until you get that much extension or whatever, you can't, you can't feel that that 98 is really perceived at one Oh five until you're in there and then it's yeah. too late, you know, and then it's like, okay, that's it. But yes, repeatability windup is absolutely perfect. Um, and that's what you're looking for in terms of, of repeatability. And, and Jake does it. He's, his windup is just so it's so crisp. And that's what I, if I was a pitcher, that's all I would work on. But all these guys, you know, they, they get caught up in, in, in the numbers and the output, you know, I got spin rate at this level, I try and get my horizontal ride at this level, blah, 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 blah. And while doing that, you wind up consistency kind of goes out the window because you might be throwing again. I mean, how many times do we see it in Instagram? Oh, a guy, oh, oh, Trevor Bauer threw it 136 against the wall today. You know, and it, like I get that. Um, yet repeatability of windup is literally the only thing you have. If you're a pitcher, if you want to be successful and then let all of those numbers come out more consistently, that's the separator. 
just how many times can you get the ball where you want to consistently? Because you have to have stuff to make it there. You're, you're not going to, you're not going to make it unless you have stuff. Then if you stay or not, is how many times can you actually get it to the spot you're trying to throw to? That, that's just me personally, but I'm pretty sure that's what Jake does. <laughs> that's that's really it. interesting. He just throws Absolutely. it to the same spot where he wants to. I mean, he just he rarely misses. Like, and when he does, it's 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 in it's in the right spot. It's usually up in the zone. And when you have 20 inches of vertical ride, that's what you get. Like you have you have width, you know, you have you have however many feet of extension, 20 inches of vertical ride at that arm angle, it's over. Like, you know, he's got consistency with it, and that's why it's really good. Absolutely. And you know, aside from the DeGroms of the world who are able to repeat the delivery and, and can spot every pitch in any part of the zone. You talked about guys, you know, throwing it through a brick wall, you know, the, the velo training, that kind of thing. As a catcher and someone who's been around the game a while, does, does that, do you like that? Does it annoy you that the, the touch and feel of pitching has kind of gone away, so to speak? The Greg Maddox is the Kyle Hendricks, for example, guys like that. You know, even DeGrom, who's someone that's, you know, in his, you know, uh, he's 33, 34 now. But someone who, even without the, you know, he's a pitcher. We've seen him, you know, not always pitch at hundred, but always know how to pitch. And so when he's in, he gets older, you think he'll be able to, you know, refine his craft, but overall as a whole in pitching, is that something that, that annoys you? And it doesn't worry you as far as the, those, the touch and feel guys and really kind of the art of pitching has been lost over the, the last few years. Right. Ability to locate. So it's just, just the ability to locate. If you can't truly locate. Okay. Some of the issues I see now is we're giving people general spots to hit. Okay. So, I mean, I'm an aim small, miss small type of guy. Some guys don't have that ability, right? That's fine. There are guys that are just sprayers, right? So you have, if, if you have a tremendous movement on a ball, like you're a sprayer, like, like a uh, familiar, I mean, a guy's throwing power sinker 95, like you've got to get him in a position just where it's, it's, you're trying to get it and make it visually appear as a strike for the longest amount of time. Um, those type of guys, you're just trying to create a setup where they're able to actually execute it. But there are so many guys that have um, stuff that is good enough to play if they can execute it in terms of uh, getting it to certain parts of the zone so that they can create insurance for their other pitches, right? If you become just an up fastball guy, breaking ball down, it's very easy. It's, it's way more easy to box you in and have a, a, a legit approach against you. Now, if you're able to, and I'm not saying every pitch needs to be down and away. Like that's, that's what, that's what, that's kind of the, the tug of war we have, right? I'm not saying throw it down and away. There are certain guys you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to work in certain zones. It's, it's, it's not cookie cut, but if you have the ability to locate your pitch and start tunneling and playing pitches off of certain pitches. And now you can really start to use those areas and throw multiple pitches off of those areas. You have something. Now, I think for the most part, we just look at, I mean, I've seen guys over and over and over throw a pitch and it, ball doesn't even really get to the mitt. And they're already looking at the iPad to check out the, the, you know, the, hor the horizontal vertical break, spin, ray axis, all, I'm mean, all the stuff. And I don't get me wrong. There's a time and place for that. Like, you're trying to create, if you're trying to create stuff in the big leagues, you're, it's just a matter of time, buddy. It's just a matter of time. So that's fine in the minor leagues, but at the end of the day, I just firmly believe there, there is, uh, there is a major balance there. And what I, what I fear is the, the, the stuff on the wristband 
on a lot of these catchers that they they just hey call from this call from this and we're starting to kind of box pitchers into certain areas and guys that have really good stuff should not be you know they should not be getting hit as they do or giving up walks as they do because we're asking them basically to throw to two really minute spots maybe at the top of the zone where you have to miss up because if you miss below you're right in the middle you know and my point is, well, if you're trying to go down and away and you don't hit the corner, if you miss middle, what's the difference in then trying to go up and you miss middle? It's balls going over the center field wall either way. What does it matter? But like being able to give yourself multiple layers of insurance against the other pitches so that you can't get boxed in. Uh, that that to me is a lost art that, that some people still got to figure it out. But there's a lot of people that are going straight so much to the straight you know, whiff zones, you know, just hammer the whiff zone, hammer the whiff zone, hammer the whiff zone. And what happens is you get boxed into a certain spot and you can't go anywhere else. You know, everybody's whiff zone is up middle and down below. I mean, it's not hard. Like if you have a whiff zone in the middle of the plate, you ain't in the big leagues very long, buddy. You know what I'm saying? So we're trying to recreate ball throwers. You know what I mean? So there are time and places and counts and situations dictated where you take your shots, but then being able to pick corners those are the guys in my opinion that are going to be the only ones getting you know 10 years you know everybody else is going to be oh, okay like yep you came in like a firecracker you come in it looks really nice shoots up it explodes wow that's amazing and then as soon as it you know as soon as the fire runs out it's it's gone and now it's the next one and so some of these guys are going to be filtered in fast 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 because as soon as you get figured out in terms of your you know your arm angle once a major league team has seen you a couple times now they're able to make that adjustment. What's your adjustment going to be? Well, if you can't get the ball in certain areas to now start defending yourself against different approaches, you're up the creek without a paddle, in my opinion. You know, so I don't know. I kind of went on a rant there, but it's just <laughs> just what I feel. You know, I want to use the tech. I mean, I give it to me. I want it, I want everything you got, and I will use it. I promise. Like I'll use it, but I just want to keep encouraging the development of pitching the locations. Like let's just have insurance policies. Why would you, if you have a free potential to insure your, you know, your abilities all over the place, why wouldn't you? Like, why yeah. wouldn't you have insurance policies all over the place? Well, you guys can't do it. Well, then you're not going to be here very long anyways. I mean, I'm trying to prolong what, what you hopefully could do. I'm passionate about it because I've seen too many kids with good talent come up and they come up and they have a good two months and they have nowhere to go in terms of they just get stuck and guys just sit on certain pitches in certain zones. And then they, then they start throwing more balls because they're getting hit hard. And then you blink and they're, they're gone. You know, it's it just, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. And it's, it's, it's goes, I guess, to preparation, how, you know, however you want to look at it, as far as, you know, having your A plan, but when your A plan doesn't work, you have to have a B plan and a C plan. And actually that when I hear what you're saying, it reminds me a lot of the Mets offense from this past season, um, especially runners in scoring position. Like the Mets had one plan, one offensive plan. If it wasn't there, they were screwed. Um, so I I'm with you there. You know, you have to, like you said, preparation that comes with, you know, the, the where you're picking your spots that day for where you're, you know, you're locating maybe isn't working. You got to go to the well to something else. So, you know, hopefully we can get back to more of that cat and mouse game and, and more of those adjustments instead of just being rigid, mm-hmm. you know, it's better for the sport. Um, but I wanted to move on real quick to the lockout stuff and, you know, want to talk about you real quick, see if there's any clubs you've maybe spoken to, maybe want to break that you signed somewhere on the podcast, <laughs> give you the opportunity. Um, but no, I just want to see if maybe if there was anyone you were talking to, or if you had, you know, is any interest for you so far? Yeah, they're, they're, uh, the, the five volts of the, 
beer league hockey team here at Centennial Sportsplex <laughs> in Nashville, Tennessee. They're on me pretty hard. I, uh, I like to play ice hockey in the off season. Um, great workout. They've, they're, they're, they're just banging my door down. I mean, they, they've been on me hard. I'm, I'm trying to negotiate just a one-way deal. I want, I don't want no two-way deal here. You know what yeah. it is? D-League. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I'd love to play, but uh, reality is the, the taxi squad thing, it would worked against me the last two years. So I've, I've only got three games in the last two years. I'm in great, I'm in great condition. I, I'm ready to go. I'm mentally, I mean, I would love to play. I just, I'm not sure it, it it's going to present itself, but we'll hope fingers crossed. We'll see what happens. Um, I think there was a second kind of point or question there. Hold on. Lockout stuff maybe, or so, so I was going to, we wanted to get to that. I wanted to see first if you were able to, you know, if you had any interest from any clubs or anything, but then going to the lockout, I was just wondering if you talked to any players or if you have like any sense of how long you think that this is going to go or players think it's going to go. And if you've heard, like, is there any off season contingency plans? Let's say this does leak into the start of pitches and catches, maybe even into spring training. Oh yeah. That's, that's always a great fear. Um, there, there's a couple guys on, I think it was maybe Cole and Britain, maybe on, on trade rumors that we're talking about it a little bit. When you when you hang out and see other other players, you do. There's a little chatter here and there, and everybody's asking, "Hey, you heard anything? Hey, you heard anything?" And it's good to remember that that subcommittee is really in there, pretty pretty deep in terms of uh, all the minute details. And so, yeah, you you fear for the worst, right? Because it's our livelihood, it's how we provide, and quite honestly, it's what we love to do. And um, just coming through a covid season it gives you sort of an idea of how uh hurtful uh, work stoppages are just in general um i think people are just so not attached but they they're so interested in sports that you take it for granted right sometimes you just take it for granted oh okay you know it's march here we go here come the boys and and it's part of your life. It's part of our routine. It's part of, uh, it's part of things we do and not having it is just almost like a brick to the face. Uh, you just, you just can't imagine it without it because it's so regular and we understand that and we don't want any sort of work stoppage, right? Uh, we, we would love to get it going. And there's, there's certain things that are kind of on the table that would be floating around that I, I just can't, necessarily and those things that I have heard I just can't just because I'm didn't even play in the big leagues last year and some dude (laughs) a remote location in Nashville trying to act like he knows it all I I don't you know but I I really believe if you ask if you ask me to place a bet I I would believe it probably uh hopefully gets all situated and figured out in the month of January hopefully at some point in the month of January just to give not only the players time to figure stuff out, but, you know, these general managers team uh, time to figure out how to, you know, round out their roster. And I just looking at the Met situation in general, I mean, how, how bad does it suck that, you know, you have a GM and a manager brand new to the team and, you know, technically they can't, you know, contact players. I, I just, uh, I don't know how I would be able to abide by the rules. Right. But you hope just for the Mets sake that they're able to you know, get it, get it out of the way, hopefully sometime early January so that everybody can start making arrangements. Phone calls can be made and get, start getting to know people and this and that just for, 
just for the sake of being able to round out a major league team to the best of the ability versus just the madness of imagine everybody. Um, what is it? It's a black Friday. I guess it was maybe not as bad these, these days because they, now they're running black Friday sales uh, six months in advance. Right. <laughs> but I guess there was a day right where people would like line up at these stores and stuff, and maybe it still happens and rush in and it's just madness inside the store. That's what will happen if, there's not an ample or decent amount of time when it comes to scouring the free agent market to, for these gyms to round out their place. It's just going to be absolute madness. And I hope just from a player's perspective, because it is, it is incredibly stressful. Uh, I know I'm getting long winded. It, it's incredibly stressful to, to not know where you're going and then sign with a team. And then you have, who knows, 10 days, two days, seven yeah. days to find a place to live. And if you're married with kids, it is, and, and spring break, everybody, you know, people are planning spring break, you know, four months ago, and you're trying to find a rental. It is spring training is a very, very difficult part time. It's a very difficult time of the year, especially for families, guys with families trying to find adequate living. And so as you delay it more and more and more, it just, it becomes an absolute headache. The Mets are in an interesting position because they have Scherzer, who is in a very strong leadership position within the MLBPA. And yeah, you, you know, you might not be as active, you know, in 2021, but he had mentioned by when the last CBA was signed, he basically said like, we as players were like preparing for this moment. And he said, we as players were building up a war chest to essentially like prepare for probably a longer lockout. I mean, it, I think it would be nice if it was wrapped up in January or early February or something before the traditional start dates. I just, I just have not seen any sort of confidence in, in that happening. Um, I, I guess I didn't even really think about it from the from the player side of it, just in terms of like, I mean, like, it seems like economics are probably the, the primary issue for the players. Um, free agency, you know, how long it takes people to get to free agency, how much they're paid as they're leading up to free agency. But yeah, I guess I didn't even think about the, the, the aspect of like, trying to find a home, you, you don't know where you're playing. And like, you know, I'm trying to find a home for a month and a half or something you know, before we get going to this other potential temporary home. It happens quick, incredibly stressful for guys with families. Uh, it, but it's part of the lifestyle. We're not going to complain about it because we, you know, we, we're adequately paid. And so uh, you figure it out, but trying to make decisions like that quickly and maybe with a, a place that you're not a, a very familiar with, you just, it, there's, there's stressors there that, that happen. Um, you're right. It it's it's one of those things that that you want you just want to keep the line moving. Uh, yet there have been significant changes in the way the game is is uh, is even played, evaluated. Um, without getting too, <laughs> because I am go. to play. You know what I mean. So it's <laughs> like come in here, just guns a blazing. But the, the league's getting younger, right? So we're seeing this, and it. You know, they're, the league is getting younger. And so if if uh, if that's happening and we're basically leaning very heavily on the zero to three, three to six numbers and guys six plus are getting kind of pushed out, unless you're a Scherzer or a DeGrom, that yeah. kind of middle class of baseball is getting totally squeezed. And that's where we have issues as players. Um, and you're go we are going to need to figure that out in terms of coming to some sort of agreement because overnight it as max is trying to i guess allude to overnight kind of the rules have dramatically changed 
uh, you know, if you're had X amount of years of service time in the big leagues, you kind of could find yourself a, a one-year deal kind of here and there. Guys started kind of, you know, if, if you pro prove that you were an adequate major leaguer, you, you usually found a home. Well, now there's a 22-year-old that has a 105 exit below in the Arizona Fall League in the month of April, um, then we're going to give him a chance. And so it's fine if that, if it's just the way the game is now. And that's how that's, it doesn't mean they're better. They're worse. It just, it just, if that's how it's going to be, then we need to adjust some things so that these kids are taken care of and they're not used and abused for three, four years and then kicked to the curb. And then we start the cycle over and now you can't get the free agency. I'll give you an example. I mean, goodness, I was drafted 2008. I spent six years in the minor leagues. I maxed out the minor league contract, got called up in 14 with the, with the Orioles and got all the way to that sixth year to max out a major league contract. And I would have played that year. I, they offered me a pretty decent amount of money and I, we thought we could go find something a little bit better in free agency. If I would have, they offered me, if I would have accepted, I would have maxed out that contract both the minor league phase six years mm -hmm. and the major league phase six years before becoming a free agent, 12 yeah. years, 12 before I could pick where I wanted to go. I got in at uh, 22. I would have been 34 before I could pick where I wanted to go play. I mean, come on, you know, like, yeah, give me a break. Like that's, well, it's your fault. It took you six years to get to the big <laughs> leagues. I mean, does that make sense? So it, well, well, look, I, I mean, I think they, of someone like I think of someone like like Pete Alonso in the Mets right now. You know, yeah. like like he he probably took three years to get to the majors, and now he has six more years before he can pick where he wants to go. And like, especially the guys coming out of college at 21, 22 years old, like they're not hitting free agency until they're in their early thirties or they're thirty or something like that. You know, all the guys getting the big mega deals nowadays, they're mostly they trend toward the guys who are. 26, 27, 28, 29, something like that. They're not typically the guys who are 31, 32, 33. I know Simeon might be a, an outlier in that situation, but um, yeah, you're right. Probably any, any person who traditionally, I guess, goes to their three or four years of college, by the time they make it to the majors, you know, it's nine, 10 years before they can pick where they want to go. And, and it seems like, as you're alluding to as well, it seems like uh, the players certainly want to kind of, uh, uh, reduce that amount of time before they can eventually then pick where they want right. to go. If, if that's what they want to do in terms of create a younger mm -hmm. product, right? If, yeah. if, if that's how it's trending. I mean, if you want to create a young, if you want to create a younger product, we, we, we're going to have to fight for these younger kids to get them to free agency quicker or else none of them will get to it. You know, unless you're a top yeah. five center, you're gone. Like they're going to, as soon as you hit, Second, third year of arbitration, you start costing a team like the Oakland A's $6 million, you're out, you know? And well, well, that's good for you. Maybe you'll just go find another team. Well, problem is there's 10 to 15 operating that way. So you've eliminated half the market, right? So now you start having 30 guys for 15 jobs because there's, can you hear that screaming? It's, it, it's family. Okay. That's my daughter. <laughs> Am I might. All right, keep it down on there. You have now you have 30 jobs. I mean, 30 guys for 15 jobs because 15 of those jobs are going to be taken by somebody making the minimum, mm -hmm. right? 
So now you've got this squeeze. I mean, I'm, I'm living proof of it. I, this is me. I've, I've been squeezed out, which don't like it play better. I, I'm not, I'm not complaining. I, I understand. I, I, I've, I have dug my own grave. I get it. Um, and still wanting to play, make that, you know, make that known, <clears throat> Mr. Cohen, make that known. You have this type of, these numbers aren't adding up. Right. So yeah, the middle class is just getting absolutely crushed here. And we're trying to take care of that, of that middle class. If that's the way you want to go, totally fine. Well, we're going to have to fight for some readjustment so that you can't abuse uh, the way that the dynamics are right now. Cause it definitely seems like, like, I mean, it, obviously it's been happening for a while, but I think Chris Bryant was kind of one of the big cases that opened my eyes. Um, and a lot of people's eyes were where the Cubs just held him down for three weeks, you know, into the season and then brought him up saying he wasn't ready three weeks ago, but now he's ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of like the, just the, the pretty blatant service time manipulation that happens, you know, but again, that would be asking owners then to be like policing themselves and policing their own teams. And, right. you know, that's, that right. those, those ideas yeah. kind of butt heads there, you know? Oh yeah. And you get it. Look, it, it's, uh, you know, the game is incredibly successful right now. It's, it's doing well. The game is, is doing well and especially rebounding the way it did after 2020. Uh, quite impressive in my opinion. And it's, it's, it's at that point where it is, it is, it is time to make, make some tweaks and adjustments. And I, I've always found that the NHL, uh, with their kind of age-based free agency. I, I like that idea. If, if I personally, I mean, I'm not on any committees. Nobody's <laughs> calling me asking my opinion, you know, but I found that the age, I like that. I just felt like it's non-discriminatory and you hit a certain age, like that's it. Um, you know, if you don't like it, go find the kid when he's 18. If, if you draft him at 20 and, and the free agency is at 26, well, you know, it just, it just is what it is. Uh, so that certain guy, it just seems seems like a good model. I don't know. I haven't looked like a ton into it. Uh, so there might be fallacies there, but it seems like a like something that would would be kind of standardized that, that could pass. I don't know. I'm just throwing something out there. No, that's interesting. And again, you know, just to to wrap kind of you know this portion up, just as far as what you're saying, you know, we'll call it how it is. You know, young guys with talent get called up now because they're cheap. Teams want to use their control while they're cheaper. And like you said, once they go to, you know, the second 30 year arbitration, they're making some money. Teams like the Rays of the world, they'll look to move them, you know, and take back prospects and do the cycle all over again. So, you know, there's got to be some middle ground, you know, helping these guys. If they're going to be up sooner, then they should be getting paid for those services a little sooner or being able to pick to where they want to go before they're, you know, to 32, 33 years old, whatever it is. But, you know, to kind of, you know, wrap to that. And, and I wanted to ask you just the last couple of questions, um, specifically with catchers. Why do you think that so many catchers end up becoming such successful major league managers? And the second fold of that, you know, would you ever consider coaching once your playing career is over? Sure. I, I, I would, I, I'd entertain coaching. I, I enjoy it. And I feel like I'm, I've got a talent for it. I, it's basically what I did the last two years in Toronto and, um, and I was with Seattle this year. So Seattle kind of came out of nowhere working with a lot of those, you know, those young guys and young pitchers. I, I, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And um, I, it is tough though, to maybe explain how much you enjoy it when your heart still wants to play. That's kind of the, the, the tug of war I'm having right now is I want to play yet. You know what? You are 35 and you really didn't play last two years. Get real buddy. But I mean, you never, you just never know. So 
I, I do believe that the, the, the position just bodes well for uh, people in coaching positions, maybe even managerial positions as a whole, because you're forced to be so intimately involved with both the offense and the defense and the, uh, the pitchers and the hitters. Uh, you got to really be in the center of all this. Uh, you're the only person facing all your teammates. So you, oh, ah, this technical difficulties. You're the only one who's really looking at them the whole time. And, you know, the old adage, all oh, the catcher is an extension of the manager. Like, yes, it is true. Um, <laughs> but more in that you're not necessarily running plays, you know, blue 49, like you're not really running a play. It's just more or less you're, you're working with both sides of the ball. So learning those skills and being able to really hone in on them because any, any left fielder can go out there and, you know, you're just catching a, a fly ball is a fly ball, right. Or, a, you know, just hitting a relay man's hitting a relay man. And half the time they're out there thinking about their swing, you know, uh, getting ready to try and drive somebody in. I mean, I have to turn off the offense as soon as it's over and go play defense. And so that's what you're doing as a manager. You're turning off offensive mode, you're turning on defensive mode, and then you get to a certain part maybe during that inning and you might start turning on offensive mode and you're looking ahead and you're, you're planning ahead. I mean, anybody who calls a game just with the, the hitter in the box in mind is behind the curve. You're thinking two, three, four hitters ahead. You're looking for your damage spots. You're looking for places to avoid damage. You're looking for your outs. You're, you're trying to play the game before it happens, you know, play the next play. My college coach used to say, you know, play the next play before it happens, like be prepared, you know? Um, so when you're, when you're doing that on a baseball field every day as a player, it just bodes well for how you, you're, you're, you're conditioned to think about the game. And then you get around people like Buck and all kinds of different amazing baseball people that start throwing, you know, little bits and tidbits here and there about other positions. And then see, I mean, I just, I just tried to use my time wisely. I went in Arizona and tried to hang out with Dave McKay, uh, one of the finest uh, first base outfield coach. I mean, outfield coach, but coaches first base for the Rays, base running outfield and just pick his brain on everything base running and outfield. Just why not? Like you have the opportunity. Yeah. Why not? And so as a catcher, you're so used to interacting with so many different types of people because it's your job. You, it just comes naturally. So uh, the amount of knowledge you can attain and little tips and tricks, it just bodes well for being able to kind of run an entire clubhouse. Now, if you have any sort of personality and if you have any humor, which really is what I bring. I mean, I bring levity and humor <laughs> to clubhouses. It, that's really who I am. I'm kind of like the class clown. Um, I know I'm kind of taking this serious, but if you can bring that, then you have maybe a separator. So now you have a way of communicating and that. And so maybe all those factors, you know, with catchers, you, there's not many catchers that I've seen that are, that are just kind of stiffs, you know, there's, it just doesn't really, it, it doesn't really meet the, the standard. I mean, McCann's got it incredibly personable. Like it, it just, there's just like a mold that seems to bode well and, and able to, uh, to connect with pretty much everybody in the organization. It's really interesting. And listen, if you don't get to, you know, manage this year or, you know, coach anywhere. And if someone's, you know, uh, dumb enough to not, you know, call you up to, to play this year, Buck Showalter, you know, he left the seat at MLB Network. I would love to see you there because you're really personable <laughs> yourself and you're really entertaining. So I would love to see you get into caucus a little bit if you got some time. I'm just saying yeah. they can really use you. I appreciate it. I, I, I've, I've. I would definitely entertain that. Do you know anybody over there? Let's, let's hook it up. I mean, let's, let's, we'll put it out it. in the airways. MLB network. 
Let's bring Caleb Joe. We, we need you a little bit. You'd be, you'd be some much needed color, I think, for the network, even though I watched them a lot. But uh, the last question I had for you was catching related. Um, you see so many catchers now opting to crouch down to, you know, one knee or one leg to get low to receive, you know, be a lower target. And especially you see even runners on base and especially runners on second, third, even bases loaded at times. What's your feelings on that? Is, is that because the running game in baseball is just like almost gone non-existent that, that catchers would rather, you know, get the strike than opposed to worrying about the runner. I just wanted to get your thoughts on that before we, you know, wrap things up tonight. Yeah, that's a really, really great question. I, I actually just came from a catching lesson uh, where we're talking about this exact same thing. Uh, we're seeing a trend in, you know, baseball's like, it's a copycat league, right? It's just, it's inevitable. I mean, if somebody goes up there and starts hitting like Lou Brock all over again, there'll be 20 guys that show up next spring training trying to look like Lou Brock, you know, with the flat bat. It's just... <laughs> Uh, it's just, it's cyclical. It just starts to do these kind of cycles. Right. So, which I, I'm kind of getting off the tracks here, but I'm trying to bring it back in terms of, I, I think that you're going to probably see some guys starting to kind of get back up. Um, in my opinion, the cat's out of the bag. These umpires know what's going on. And if you look at it, a lot of these coaches or even players are going to sell their you know their quote framing numbers and all of this and all of that well like, there's been so much talk about it now it's not necessarily a secret anymore so again like buck i mean i'm always looking for the separator what's the separator in that framing statistic and all of those caught strike called strikes and sl plus and all of the stuff well it, it's so predicated on who's back there so who is behind the plate? Who's behind the plate calling balls and strikes? And what are they? What are their preferences? They're human. And this is going to be an irrelevant topic if they decide to go to robo ups. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so oh, amazing. We figured out how to frame the low pitch, you know, and then gone, you know, just totally gone. <laughs> so we'll have to see what happens with that, but hopefully not. I, my question is, what's the most important thing? You know, and this is what you have to answer. What's the, wh where, where are your priorities? Which every organization I've been to ask them, hey, what, like, th there's basically five keys, right? It's framing, pitch calling, blocking, throwing. There's probably one more. I just, you know, <laughs> you can dodge a wrench. You can, you know. <laughs> so where, where's the priority? Well, all of them. No, no, no. I know. But like one has to take precedent over the other, because if, if, if it's pitch framing, then you might get on a knee when there's a guy at third base and, and, and what, what is it? Is it, is it blocking? Is it, and I believe the game will tell you what is the precedent. So 90 feet is the most important thing to me. Okay. I understand the differences in OPS from a, from a one, one count to a one, two count versus a two, one count. I know that's a 450 OPS swap and I know how important that strike is, but to me, there's never a strike that's more important than 90 feet. If you have a guy at first base and you're on one knee looking for that one strike, yet you get a ball that squibbles away, that's 90 feet. Now it takes a, a, a broken bat to score a run, to score a run. There's, in my opinion, there's no 90-foot increment that is more important than a strike. But that's just me personally. There's people that will argue it, and there's probably statisticians that will probably try and prove me wrong. But what I have seen is more guys just going all, just running around free bases. I can't stand free 90 feet increments i can't stand it and if i'm in a position where i can't move and i can't block and i'm only looking for one pitch in one zone and i'm stuck 
and I see the ball scoot by, that, that's not necessarily a wild pitch. It, it irks me. And the funny thing is you mentioned the running game being non-existent. I'm telling you, it, it's probably going to come back because you have a two or three year span where people don't know how to throw nobody out. And what you saw in the, in, I don't know, if I was paying attention a little bit to how many stolen bases they were actually trying in the World Series between Houston and Atlanta. It's mm-hmm. so funny to me, 162 game season always played one way. And then when it's time to actually win, the season goes right back to purest baseball. It makes no sense to me. So I'm telling you, if Buck doesn't believe that a player can throw behind the plate, he's going to take advantage of it. And that's the problem. The problem is some of these guys are in these positions and they really can't throw. You know, they make it look like they can throw and they think they can throw, but you can't throw from certain positions and you actually do a good job. And it's just, it's going to take a team to totally exploit a weakness for this to change back. Um, there's time and a place to get on a knee and steal that low pitch. If you've got DeGrom on the mound and it's a 0-2 count and there's nobody on base, get, get on get on three knees for all I care. It's not even possible. You know, lay on the ground. I don't care. But when there's a potential to throw a guy out, which is a, is, is a reduction in 90 feet, or you have to block a pitch in the dirt, I'm, I'm saving 90 feet over taking a strike. Personally, I'm doing it 100% of the time. And if I ever coach, I'm sorry, that's my theory. And if I don't get hired because of it, so be it. <laughs> but I'm so sick and tired of watching guys as catchers be put in a position where they can't block. There's a guy at third base. It is a run. It is a run. And a guy just makes this, uh, and, and it looks like he doesn't care. And it looks like, it, but he can't, you can't move. It's just, oh, and the guy just walks in. It's a run. And if I was a pitcher, I would be losing my, you know what? I mean, it's an earned run. You got to be bleeping me. I mean, I get fired up with this with this <laughs> conversation because these people have, have tricked us and fooled us that, that literally a strike is more important than runs. And last time I checked, the game is based off of runs, not strikeouts. You know, be, like the old movie, be more democratic. Throw some freaking ground balls and some fly balls. Like, we're trying to strike everybody out. It's boring. Like, Play the game. Play the game. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I personally think I was able to stay in the game because I was able to actually frame a little bit. I have pretty good framing numbers, you know. Mm-hmm. But there's a time and a place, and the game will tell you when to do it, you know. Guy at third base, man, just block the ball. You know, just block the ball. If the guy in first base, give yourself a chance to throw him out. Give yourself a chance to throw him out. So that's how I feel. I'm, I'm, I might be on an island here, and it might be why nobody's calling me. <laughs> but – I just I, I love 90 feet more than anything. Giving it and taking it at the major league level, in my opinion, is the separator. And who gives it away more and who takes it away? I mean, who gives it away less and who takes it away more is usually the team in the takeaway war that, that usually wins the series and ultimately, you know, wins the division. You, you sound like you grew up under Buck. This is what this has <laughs> sounded like. <laughs> well, these poor teammates of mine, this is what I do, you know, when because I feel like it, it's important. You once you convince these people that this is how the game is played, it is played in the trenches. Everybody wants to look at that, you know, the B-17 bomber flying fortress is dropping all the bombs. They want to look at all that. No, no. It's the dudes that are literally in the trenches just slowly making their way to tighten the formation that is getting you in position to get the knockout blow. If you if you lose the flank over there on the left side, like you're you're, you're susceptible, you're open, and it doesn't matter. You can have the best you know, sneak attack ready. But if you're vulnerable on this side, it's irrelevant. And so don't beat yourself. And once you start getting these kids, because they really are, I mean, I'm up in Seattle with 21, 22, 23 year old kids. And you start saying, hey, 90 feet, just watch how many times 90. Feet. What do you mean 90 feet? And it's, it's, it's just like schools in session. And you're trying to explain, no, no, seriously, just watch. 
And I'm not talking about it. Everybody just goes straight to errors. No, I'm talking about, you know, a double play, a major league double play that wasn't turned. I'm talking about some sort of cutoff and relay that was bobbled that allowed a guy to just advance. You know, if you got to base it up the middle with a guy at second base and the guy playing center field, air mails the cutoff man and the guy from first goes all the way to second. That's a gift of 90 feet, regardless of whether he's that's just 90 feet. Like we gave it away. It's 90 feet. That type of stuff is that's what changes the game. It's and if you if you've never seen it and if you don't see the game that way, you don't you don't really recognize it. Once you start seeing it that way and that's your priority versus, oh, man, we're going to, you know, we're, we're let's 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 you know, let's really ambush this guy today. And, you know, we're going to we're going to we're going to sit on a slider and this like, no, that's fine. You have to do that. But when the emphasis is on not beating yourself in terms of your structure and your fundamentals, magic happens. Magic happens. Hi. If you want to learn baseball, talk to a catcher. Watch <laughs> it through the eyes of a catcher. This was amazing. I literally could keep you here all night, but I don't want to do that because your family will probably want to kill me. So we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> wrap it up here. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us. This was awesome. We're gonna have you back again. Now I hope you know that I'm gonna have to have you on all the time because you're fired up. I love it. Um, but you know, until then, we'll be back next week talking everything with the lockout and the Mets. Hopefully we'll have, uh, something maybe not lockout by them, but I'm not keeping uh, my hold of my breath, but uh, until then, everybody, uh, don't forget to get Mets memorized. Get mesmerized, get mesmerized.